The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Thank you for joining P.I.'s Declassified this morning. I'm pleased to introduce to you an attorney from Colorado, Forrest Plesko. Uh, Forrest has a long list of credentials and honors. He's a graduate of the University of Denver Strum Law School, where he received honors as a senior articles editor for the DU Law Review, and now he serves as a professional mentor for the university. He's clerked for two district judges and I think an administrative law judge, and he serves on the Colorado Lawyer Advisory Board. Welcome to the show, Forrest. Thank you, Francie. Glad to be here this morning. Uh, this is going to be very interesting and I think uh, very instructional. So your practice focuses mostly on professionals like maybe lawyers and CPAs and then businesses, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm with a 12-attorney law firm in Denver called Childs & Kuhn, and uh, primarily we do work in the professional liability context, and and we're on the defense side, so we defend uh, medical malpractice cases, legal malpractice cases, as well as uh, high liability negligence cases. Um, I also personally practice in uh, the employment law uh, world as well as uh, the subrogation world. Oh, wow. So you have your feet in a lot of different kinds of stuff. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps me busy, that's for sure. It keeps you busy. So you were, I, I can't imagine it must, what it must have been like to be clerking for these district judges. Was that an adventure or was it, um, what did you think about doing that? It was fascinating. Um, you know, I did most of my work on the civil side, which was, you know, just, just lawsuits uh, between parties over money. Um, mm-hmm. But I also worked uh, somewhat in the criminal side, uh, and we had a felony criminal docket that we, that we worked on as well. And some of the stories uh, that, that, that come across in that kind of a docket are, are memorable, to say the least. But mm-hmm. the civil docket as well, you know, all sorts of crazy issues uh, that make it to the courts. Like watching Judge Judy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fascinating. Um, and I met, you must have learned just an amazing amount uh, that you probably wouldn't have gotten anyplace else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely helpful to have that experience before you step out into private practice and, and you know, try to handle some of these matters on behalf of a client when you, you know, when you can say, well, I've, I've seen them, I've seen how they're argued and seen how they're litigated. That, that gives you a big leg up sometimes. 
Well, not um, seems like not only a leg up, but a lot of confidence. Wow. Well, yeah, you know that helps too. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to discuss how private investigators' actions may spill over onto their attorney clients. So, um, so Forrest, I read your art. You you wrote an article for PI Magazine. PI Magazine is a sponsor for this show, and I read an article in PI Magazine, and um, it's very well written, called How to Avoid Conflicts Between PI Techniques and Attorney Ethics. So let's talk about that. Um, Sure. What kinds of things, first of all, can you give some examples of some kinds of things that um, PIs and attorneys have gotten involved in where there may be a conflict like that? Sure, absolutely. And, And that's actually what even got me thinking about writing about this issue to begin with, um, we had a presentation in our law firm by uh, some private investigators, and they uh, presented uh, this this kind of uh, neat technique for getting into people's Facebook accounts. Uh, and, and basically the idea was that they had a, a variety of fake people set up on Facebook um, and then when you had, for example, a plaintiff in a lawsuit, they could use one of these fake people to friend this plaintiff on Facebook, Hmm. thereby getting into the person's account and revealing all of the details that you can't see uh, publicly. And this this was a few years ago when this was this was kind of cutting edge. And I and I and I was thinking in a presentation. I thought, gee, I'm not I'm not sure you can do that. Um, And so I started doing some research and started looking into it more and more that issue and that kind of spiraled into some of the other issues that I talk about in the article, which, you know, have to do with the limits of what an attorney can have an investigator do for surveillance, uh, the limits of what an attorney can have an investigator do for social media and for a few other things as well. Um, But, you know, I'd like to stress that, and this is in the article, but I'd like to stress as well that I don't, I'm not suggesting that, investigators are going out of their way to do anything wrong or against the rules, but really it's just not necessarily being informed by the attorneys Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the limits in a particular jurisdiction, what they can do without causing uh, a potential problem under the ethical rules. Well, and and investigators need to be aware of what their responsibilities are too. The, yeah. I mean, if you talk about social media, you're talking about social media, for example, say Facebook, uh, investigators should know that, they, that the rules of face, social media typically don't allow them to become somebody else right. that isn't their real name. And also, investigators that are working on cases with attorneys should know they can't contact the other side if they're represented by counsel, so they should they, they should have that responsibility to know that. Yeah, and I and I think it's I think it's uh, you know definitely a two way street. I did a presentation for the uh, Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado a couple of months oh, yeah. ago. Real very nice group of people, and we talked about these issues. And one of the uh, investigators in the audience said, she raised her hand, and she said, "Well, you know, I had this issue recently where an attorney asked me to do." something on a case. I don't remember what it was. Um, 
But I, I said to the attorney, you know, I'm pretty sure under the attorney ethical rules, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, that's and funny. The, the, attorney, the attorney had no idea. So, you know, in that case, it, it's certainly a two-way street where sometimes the attorney gets zealous about, for example, finding some piece of evidence. And the investigator who's there, who's actually read the rules and is a little bit familiar with them, can have that conversation with the attorney and say, well, you know, hey, you're my client and I don't want you to get in trouble so let's talk about this. And I don't think that in any, uh, you know, reasonable case, somebody's going to be upset or offended that, uh, you know, the investigator pointed out something that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, you know, let's talk about these rules. So these mm-hmm. are um, the model rules of professional conduct? Right. So um, what, I, what I talked about in the article is, is the model rules of professional conduct. And maybe just by way of background... Um, these rules are established by the American Bar Association. And the American Bar Association is this sort of national organization of attorneys from 50 states. And it's a body that essentially puts out uh, model rules for state bar associations to adopt or reject. And so these model rules sort of set forth uh, lawyers' ethical obligations and responsibilities. But they're not binding on anybody. They're just recommendations. So okay. what happens is after the ABA puts forth these rules, then each state and its respective Supreme Court or Bar Association looks at the rules and decides whether they want to adopt them uh, as they're written, whether they want to completely reject them, or whether they want to modify them. So in any state that an investigator is operating in or an attorney is practicing in, the rules are going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think most states, I think at the last time I checked, it was 42 states had, had adopted the ABA's rules, okay. but they change them. So the rules here in Colorado, for instance, are, are different than the rules would be, say, in California. They're roughly mm-hmm. the same, but sufficiently different where it's, it's hard to say there's a universal rule. But what I did in the article was I used the, the ABA rules because they're, they're about as close as you can get for a, a national audience. Okay, so if a state adopts the ABA rules, what can happen to an attorney if the rules are violated? Well, um, nothing good. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's so each state then will have a, a disciplinary board, and and for example, in Colorado, we have uh, an office of attorney regulation, and there's a number of attorneys in that office. And for example, if an ethical complaint, which means uh, a complaint saying one of these rules was broken mm-hmm. goes to that office. They'll investigate it. Um, the, if the attorney, for example, denies that the rule was violated, then the attorney can go to a hearing in front of a, a judge who's appointed to hear these matters. And if the attorney is uh, found to have violated the rule, then he has a right to appeal that uh, to a panel of the Supreme Court. And sanctions range anywhere from... Uh, what's called sort of private discipline, where it's a private admonishment, and they, they, they basically put a note in your file that says, hey, you violated this, don't do it again, mm-hmm. uh, to, to what's called a public censure, uh, where they publish uh, a decision that says, you know, attorney X violated these three rules, and here's why we think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there can be suspensions uh, from the practice of law for months or years, and the, the, the ultimate sanction is disbarment. 
uh, where the attorney is uh, disbarred from the state and, and can no longer practice law in, in the state and in most other states. Once you're disbarred in one state, it's pretty difficult to um, join the bar of another state. Interesting. So I'm just curious, uh, and you may not know the answer to this, but do you know of any situation where uh, an attorney has been um, sanctioned or disbarred for actions of, of the private investigator that's working for them? Well, in Colorado, I don't know. Um, you know, there's plenty of cases involving the same rules. So we can, you know, we can talk about a couple of these specific rules, but most of the, most of the rules are, are rules that say an attorney can't do anything dishonest, can't make misrepresentations, and plenty of disciplinary cases have, have fallen under those rules. So it's not a real stretch um, to say that an attorney can be disciplined from an investigator's conduct because we have a rule which says an attorney, uh, in many cases, can be held responsible for the conduct of somebody uh, who is acting as his employer agent. But I'm not aware of a specific case, at least in my own state, where that's happened. I wouldn't well, doubt it's happened, though, uh, in the other 49 states. Yeah, the famous case that we probably all know about is the Hewlett-Packard case involved the board of directors. And I don't know what happened to the attorneys that were involved in that. I know what happened to the investigators. Some of them were charged criminally. But I don't know what happened to the attorneys. Do you? I don't. I don't know uh, uh, the circumstances there. Okay. All right. So, okay, so the model rule for one says what? Well, four point one. So, so, so basically, four one is is a rule um, that says, and if if an attorney makes a false statement of material fact or law, that's an ethical violation. Really, what it is is it's a rule that says attorneys can't lie, which you know sometimes uh, brings amusement to members of the public when they hear <laughs> that there's a there's a specific rule that says lawyers can't lie. Um, but but that's the rule, and and that rule you know, is used as a basis uh, quite frequently um, for, for the kinds of things that we're talking about in the context of this article. And that's where the pretexting uh, issue comes in. Is that, right. is that where that applies to? Yeah, there's 4.1 is, is a good one for that. There's actually another rule, which is 8.4, which also applies, but... That, that's exactly right. I mean, when we're talking about pretexting, by definition, we're talking about someone purporting to be someone who they're not, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is pretty problematic under the language of Rule 4.1. This, and this is problematic for investigators because often investigators are, um, you know, they're required to do a job <laughs> right? and gather evidence for whoever they're working for. And, uh, and one of those jobs often has to do with whether is this person home or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, and I know from my own experience hiring investigators, so, so I, I am a big fan of video surveillance. Um, many of our cases involve personal injury claims. And, you know, as, as you might imagine, uh, sometimes things in personal injury claims are made to sound worse than perhaps they are objectively. And, mm-hmm. and video evidence is significant in defending these kinds of claims because, you know, if you can get video of, you know, a plaintiff engaging in 
uh, you know, a game of basketball at the local Y or, you know, taking a run. And then you look at what he said in his deposition, which is, gee, because of this accident, my discs in my back are compressed and I can barely walk. That's very powerful evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the frustrations that, that, that investigators who I've worked with have said as well. You know, I've sat outside this guy's house for two days. You know, if I could just call him and say there's a package or, you know, knock on the door like a solicitor to see if anybody comes to the door, that would be so much easier. And, and the response for me has to be, well, at least in, in, in this jurisdiction, that's unacceptable. Can't do it. Cannot make contact. So you're, you're saying this, this guy's been sitting in the house for two days. He doesn't even know if anybody's home or not. Right. And it's, and it's tough, you know, because most of the plaintiffs uh, in, who I deal with in my practice are represented by counsel. Mm-hmm. And there's a specific rule of the model rules which say that an attorney cannot in any way, shape, or form communicate with a person who is represented by counsel in that same matter. And under the rules... I can't send an agent or an employee to do what I'm prohibited from doing. So if I were to send my investigator to the plaintiff's house, who's represented, knock on his door, basically that's as if I walked up to his door, knocked on his door, and mm-hmm. that turns into an ethical violation for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will point out, though, that, that a lot of this is jurisdictional, meaning that just because it's not okay in Colorado, for instance, there is some case law in other jurisdictions um, where pretexting has been uh, held by courts to be acceptable under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, for example, there's a case uh, out of New York uh, where it was a uh, it was a fraud case or a trademark case rather, and some private investigators walked into a store. They had cameras or recorders on. Mm-hmm. And they pretended to be interior decorators who wanted to buy something from this store. The salesman uh, basically told these investigators, well, you know, our product is just like the product of whatever other company down the street, but it's less expensive. Well, that was the basis for the trademark infringement case that they, they needed, to, that needed to make. Well, once they went to court, uh, the allegation from... Uh, this store that, uh, that the investigators went to is that evidence was basically illegally obtained. It was unethically obtained. And the court held, well, in this circumstance, it wasn't because the basis of the rule is to prevent uh, people from being tricked, if you will, by attorneys into saying something they normally wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. But here, because these people were posing as customers, the salesman said exactly what he normally would say. So therefore, the pretexting was not ethical. But that case is an outlier. It's applicable in one jurisdiction, and most of the other cases uh, that I've seen hold the other way, which is you really can't do that because it it's involves misrepresentation. Interesting. Yeah, it it is a it's it's a complicated pretext is a complicated thing because if you have, for instance, a fraudster, so you or you have a uh, some, say a parental abduction, and you're trying to locate. Uh, where they are, or um, possibly a missing child that you're working on, a missing adult you're working on, uh, you really can't tell people who you are. So it's really complicated. I, yeah, it, it certainly is. And, you know, I, I think uh, when I'm looking at these rules, you know, of course, I'm looking at this in the context of attorney involvement. 
And if there's not attorney involvement, then these rules don't really apply. Then it's the investigator's own professional uh, code of conduct that, that sort of is exclusively uh, the code that they would look to. But anytime there's counsel involved, you know, when an attorney is the one who is hiring you or an attorney is the one who is uh, directing you what to do as the investigator, then that's when these rules come into play. Yeah, and I, and I think that sometimes investigators, when investigators are working on, say, workers' comp, like what you're talking about where you're, you're on the defense side, uh, there's a workers' comp situation or an uh, uh, injury situation, the investigator doesn't see that maybe global perspective where uh, even if it's because it's an insurance company, they don't think about it, that it's ultimately under an attorney. Mm-hmm. Because attorneys are always going to be over the insurance company when it comes to, a, say, a workers' comp claim, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that's where, you know, the, just the really clear and open communication between the investigator and the attorney uh, comes into play, is that, you know, when you as the investigator are retained, uh, you know, find out a little bit of information about, well, gee, who is it that's retaining me? Is it the insurance adjuster? Is it the attorney who's acting as outside counsel? You know, who am I getting my directions from? Who am I getting my information from? Right. If the if the, the lawyer's paralegal is sending you all of the information about the person that you're going to go investigate, well, you know, that's a pretty good indication that it's coming from the lawyer. And, right. you know, maybe, maybe that's where the red flag starts to go up and go, okay, well, gee, what, you know, what can I do or not do in this context? But even if it's the insurance adjuster, I mean, it's again, it's incumbent upon the investigator to know what the rules are, and if there's any, if there's a that gut check about the rules, they better make sure that um, they they know what they're doing in their state. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely a you know just a great habit to get into and a great practice to get into is is. Uh, not having to ask the questions uh, so much and just be able to, uh, you know, go uh, and have that in the back of your mind about what are, what, what are the outlines of, of what I can and can't do under this particular set of rules. Now, one of the things you said for us a couple, uh, couple of minutes ago, you said as attorney that's representing them, the person in the same mat, on the same matter. And, I, mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes we, um, as investigators, we'll go to a, somebody's door, knock on the door, and they'll say, oh, you'll have to talk to my attorney. Well, it turns out the attorney isn't representing them on this case. They may Mm -hmm. be their business attorney or it may be their grandfather that's an attorney. Uh, And I've run into that a number of times. So you have to ask the follow-up question of, why are they representing you on this case? Yeah, and I mean, that's, you know, and that's a tricky distinction to make sometimes because, um, you know, what, what I've found is the knee-jerk reaction, for example, from uh, the grandfather who's the attorney is, well, yes, of course I'm representing my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, just, you just want to be careful, and that may be, especially if you've been retained by an attorney uh, or are working with an attorney, that may be a question just to refer to the attorney. The person says, hey, I've got an attorney. Okay, then you come and call the attorney you're working for, report back and say, this person told me they have an attorney, what do you know? And maybe the attorney doesn't know that they have one, maybe the attorney does know that they have one, it, it, it's, it's really hard to say, but I think that would be a question that, 
if I were hiring an investigator and that came up, that's just something that I'd want to know about because sometimes, you know, as you say, as the attorney handling the case, I've got a pretty broad range of information that I just haven't shared with the investigator because maybe I didn't think it was relevant or, you know, maybe I didn't want to spend the time doing it. Mm-hmm. So that would be a question I think you'd want to bounce back. You know, what? so, Horace, what would you recommend, um, say, you're interviewing some way, someone and you're halfway through or three-quarters of the way through the interview, and they bring up, at that point, that they're represented by counsel. How do you handle that? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's tough. You know, you get, you get to that point uh, where the person hasn't made any indication of being represented in the matter. Um, again, I think that's a situation where you need to call back to the attorney that you're working for and say, what do you want me to do with this? Um, Quite frankly, that has, that's, that's never come up in my practice um, because for me, um, usually by the time that I get the case, the plaintiff is already represented by an attorney who's usually filed suit or at least sent a demand letter. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think the only answer that I can give is, um, you know, I would, I would kind of stop and say, okay, well, you know, let me go make a phone call. <laughs> and that's when you go, you go talk to talk to the attorney that hired you because you know you, that's a real situation where it gets really sticky. Um, because what that plaintiff is going to say down the road is, well, I told this investigator that I had an attorney, not pointing out that he didn't tell you for forty five minutes right. after you started talking to him. Exactly. But then it's going to create a real mess because then you as well as the attorney who hired you is going to be put in the defensive position of having to say, well, wait a minute. So there was no mention of an attorney until, you know, whatever point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough situation that you find yourself in. And I think that, I think that's when you punt and ask the attorney, what do you want, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do now? <laughs> yeah. As I back out the door gracefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting, actually. So, um, all right. So, let's go back to um, let's go back to pretexting. So, mm-hmm. do you is is it your take that you shouldn't ever pretext? Right, what do you think about that? No, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think that's I think that's too broad. Um, if I had to sort of condense this into a you know. In, into what, what, what I think in, in, in a, you know, 10 words or less, I think it's this. The rules, the rules state that when you have a represented plaintiff or when you're doing something involving uh, a, a, um, a false statement, that's a violation of the rules. But the rules only apply in the context of when you have an attorney overseeing the operation. So in other words, if you're investigating something on behalf of, let's say, a family member, mm-hmm. there's no attorney involved. Well, these rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. If you're investigating something on behalf of the insurance adjuster and there's no attorney involved, these rules don't apply. It's only when you're investigating something in the context of being uh, instructed or uh, advised by an attorney that these rules come into play because ultimately these are rules that bind the attorney and 
you know, you, the attorney cannot do through others what he couldn't do himself. So I wouldn't go so far as to say never ever do pretexting. I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's, uh, okay, that's realistic. Okay. But I think, I think what the case is, is if you're involved in the case with an attorney, then you need to, number one, talk to the attorney about whether you can do pretexting. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it depends on what exactly you're going to do and what jurisdiction you're in. Because sometimes in some jurisdictions, under some circumstances, you can still do pretexting, but it just depends. Right. So, so this is model rule 4.1. Yeah, for well, it, yeah, it's it's four point one is is the big one. There's some other ones that are that are also involved, but um, you know, four point one and and five point three is the rule that says an attorney can't do through someone else uh, what he couldn't do himself. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break um, for us, and when we come back, I, w- I want to uh, go over these two rules verbatim so everybody understands what we're talking about. Okay. Sure. Okay, we'll be right back after commercial break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F-R-A-N-C-I-E at PISdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Forrest Pesco is an attorney in Colorado, and we've been talking about how the activities of a private investigator may affect the attorney. So we're just talking about these model rules. Forrest, model rule 4.1, what does that say? Well, it says, uh, it says in the course of representing a client, a lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of material fact or law to a third person. It also says some other things, but that's the, that's the language that, that we're interested in in this context. Okay, and the third person obviously would be the person that investigator is talking to or the attorney. Sure. Yeah, okay. sure. Basically, basically anybody. 
Okay. And then you mentioned Model Rule 5.3. What is that one? So Model Rule 5.3 is, is the easiest way to describe it is, is it's a rule that uh, provides vicarious liability for an attorney's employees or agent's conduct. And what it says is it says with respect to a non-lawyer employed or retained by a lawyer, um, the lawyer having direct supervising authority shall make reasonable efforts to ensure that the person's conduct is compatible with the professional obligations of the lawyer. Uh, and a lawyer shall be responsible for conduct of that person if it would be a violation of the rules of professional conduct. And so, so really, um, what it requires is that the lawyer exercise some actual supervisory authority over, for example, a paralegal or an investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the lawyer allows that person uh, to do something in violation of the rules, then that rule violation can be imputed to the lawyer and affect the lawyer's license. And does this apply also if the, if the lawyer doesn't know? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it, it could. Uh, what the cases say is that the lawyer is responsible for um, reasonably supervising. So mm-hmm. it comes down to what does reasonable mean? If I give the investigator uh, a blank check and say, I want to know everything about what this plaintiff is doing, go. And the investigator goes and does pretexting and flies a drone over the person's house and puts a GPS tracker on their car and, you know, fake Facebook friends them and gets me all this information. Well, that's great. But have I, through willful ignorance, avoided my obligations under the rule? And the cases would suggest that I have not. Um, on the other hand, if I send my investigator a detailed letter that says, Dear Investigator, this is a represented plaintiff. You can't make contact with him. You can't, you know, get into his Facebook and so on and so forth. The investigator goes out and unbeknownst to me does all the things I just mentioned. Well, I, I've probably been reasonable in that context because right. I told him what to do and he did it anyway. So in that right. sense, that conduct may not be imputed to me. But, okay. you know, those are kind of, those are, those are sort of two extremes. And the reality falls somewhere in the middle where, you know, it, did, did I sanction it? Did I sanction the conduct? I don't know. Did I know about the conduct? Well, you know, that's a factor. Uh, should I have known about the conduct based on past instances of what the investigators done in other cases? So all of those things are going to go into a determination of whether uh, the lawyer is vicariously liable for the investigator. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I think I, I mentioned the Hewlett-Packard case. I, I, um, this was a case uh, that I think happened about 2000. I'm thinking about 2006, and it was uh, a situation where the uh, information was being leaked from the board of directors' meetings, and mm-hmm. the uh, the president of the board of directors or the president of the company no, I guess uh, whether it's the president of the company, the president of the board of directors sought counsel, counsel hired investigators, and those investigators uh, tried accessing, or I guess did access, the board of director individual phone records through pretexting and getting their social security number. And so it became a 
it blew up into a very, obviously, a very big deal. Um, so here's a situation where uh, it looked like maybe the attorneys, of course, all we know is what the press says, it looked like the attorneys may have known what was going on. Yeah, and, and if they did, I mean, they, they, they almost certainly, if there was proof that they knew, uh, they almost certainly had ethical uh, complaints or violations under these rules, um, you know, because there's, uh, you know, you can't, you can't, on the one hand, tell the investigator, yeah, go do that. That's a great idea. Uh-huh. But you can't, on the other hand, bury your head in the sand and exercise no supervision whatsoever. Uh, and then when the investigator comes back with these phone records based on pretext, go, well, gee, I didn't know. That's eh, not going to work. Mm-hmm. That's not going to mm-hmm. get you out of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and so then uh, another sticky area is uh, GPS units. Tell me about what you think about those. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting um, with, with the GPS technology. Um, you know, th- there's a couple of considerations that, that I've thought of with the GPS. I mean, one is, Again, this is going to be based completely on the jurisdiction, but you have to find out whether placing an object on somebody else's car is even legal, um, whether that is something as simple as a, as a trespass, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a misdemeanor trespass crime, or whether it falls under, you know, some type of stalking statute or stalking behavior. So that, that's, you know, number one. Okay, is, is this criminally okay? And if it is... Um, you know, then you have to ask, well, is, is it actually a good idea? <clears throat> and here's what I mean by that. So in these cases, for example, uh, where I'm a defense lawyer, oftentimes I'm retained by an insurance company to defend a big corporation. Mm-hmm. Well, that big corporation may not necessarily want the bad press that could come with, uh, you know, putting a GPS tracker on somebody's car and following them around town. I mean, quite frankly, you know, that could be construed by a jury as kind of a creepy thing. And, you know, a good plaintiff's lawyer could get up there and say, not only did, you know, this big corporation not believe my client's medical records and all the doctors saying he was injured, but they actually put a GPS on his car to track him around town to see where he went. Mm-hmm. And, you know... That's a that's a, a tough position to be in from the defense because juries don't really like that kind of thing. So then you have to say, okay, well, is is the information that I'm going to get from this GPS tracker even worth the risk of you know all the bad uh, publicity and 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 the bad vibes, if you will, that could come at trial because of doing it? And and if it is, then we get to Model Rule eight point four. Um, and Model Rule 8.4 says it's misconduct for a lawyer to engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. <clears throat> so if I have my investigator go and surreptitiously put this GPS unit under the bumper of somebody's car, mm-hmm. is, that, is, is that deceitful conduct? Is it dishonest conduct? You know, we did it without their knowledge. So I, and I don't know the answer to that. And when I wrote the piece, I, I was unable to find any cases uh, where that's happened and it's become an issue. So I don't know how um, state rules authorities would actually treat that. But I think in any event, there's, there's 
definitely some questions uh, that one should ask before going about doing it. Well, it, the question about trespassing is an interesting question just by itself. Uh, some investigators would, would say, the, those that do uh, moving surveillance, for example, that it's much safer if there's a GPS tracking device on the car because then they don't have to worry about, you know, running, <laughs> running red lights and, and going too fast through traffic to follow somebody that uh, may be uh, on a legitimate say, a worker's injury case or, or uh, something like that. So uh, that is the argument I hear from, from investigators that, that use them in that way. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of validity to that. But, you know, if, if you're going to do the work, um, you know, for, for, for example, a corporate client, mm-hmm. I think they're going to want to know a lot of questions, the answers to a lot of questions about, okay, well, yeah, it might be safer, but is it legal? And is it somehow going to get us sued or, for example, there's a tort called invasion of privacy. Um, could, I, could we get countersued for that just because we uh, wanted to, to try to track this person? And so it's just something, again, where if you're considering doing it, maybe you can. Um, but I think that there's enough red flags there where you want to have that conversation with the attorney and say, okay, look, here's what I propose. Um, here's what the rules say. What do you think we should do? Is it worth, is it worth the potential risk to get this information or is it not? And, and that's not a question likely the attorney's going to be able to answer. He'll probably mm-hmm. take it to his client and say, okay, hey, look, it's your case. Is this information worth it or not? And, right. and there's your answer. Yeah. Um, hmm. So it, it's an in, many jurisdictions will require um, you to get the permission of the registered owner to put a GPS tracking. So the car is registered in both the husband and wife's name, and it's a some kind of a cheater case. Then um, it's sufficient to have in some jurisdictions the authorization of one or the other party. But I've mm-hmm. always wondered. Uh, Myself, and I, I don't do any of this, so it, this is not something I've run into, but I've always wondered myself is if the bank owns, still owns the car, <laughs> you're making payments, so the bank really owns the car, um, is, the, uh, is the bank responsible <laughs> for giving authorization? Just a yeah, thought. I, Just a crazy I, thought. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so, and, I, and, and this, that's not the area of law I practice with, yeah. with liens and such, but... I think that I think that if so long as the you know for example the husband and wife are on the title, I think the bank has a security interest in the car, but I'm not sure that they have any any ownership interest in it mm. sufficient to authorize, for example, you know repairs or a GPS tracker or a, a new sunroof for that matter. Okay. Okay. All right. So, what are your strategies for us? Uh, to avoid all of these ethical violations, what would what recommendations would you have? I mean, we have listeners that that are not only private investigators. We have probably have attorneys here too that are listening to the show. So, what recommendations would you make? Well, I you know I think that that the big ones are just you know sort of the basic things that you would do if you were hiring any employee. I mean, you first of all. Um, Let's just suppose I'm going to hire a brand new investigator. I don't know anything about this person. 
um, I want to know a little bit about them. You know, what's, what's their background? Are they licensed? Um, you know, how long have they been doing this? What kind of training do they have? Um, you know, do they have some professional references, maybe two or three other attorneys in the community that they've done some work for, uh, who I can call up and, and say, hey, is, is, is this investigator, you know, do they do the kind of work that they say they do? Said, you know, just, just mm-hmm. basic background things as if you were going to hire somebody for your office. Um, whenever I retain an investigator, I'll do, um, usually it's just an email um, you know, very rarely does anybody write actual paper letters anymore, so I'll send an email. <laughs> but, the, but, but the email will just sort of list out, you know, basic rules of engagement, okay? For example, this is a represented plaintiff. Because he's represented, you can't make any contact with him. Um, you know, if there's any issue with social media and you want to do any types of searches, contact me first. Um, you know, just, just basic things, kind of the things that we've talked about. And I, you know, I'll list those out in the letter. And that's, that, that has two reasons. One is I want to make clear to the investigator that this is what, this is what you, you can do and can't do. But two, I also want to protect myself because as mm-hmm. we talked about a little bit uh, before in the context of Rule 5.3, uh, if the investigator goes out and does a bunch of things without my knowledge, well, I can point to that email and help away. I told you specifically you weren't supposed to do those things, and here's here's the proof. So, so there's that, um, and then there's there's just actual reasonable supervision, and, and and that's just as simple. I think it's just being in touch with somebody, whether it's on the phone or whether it's by email, and talking to the investigator about, uh, hey, hey, what you know, what did you do at the end of this surveillance day? What did you find? Most of the investigators that I work with are very proactive about that. I don't have to email them; they send me an email. And they say, look, you know, I sat outside so-and-so's house for three hours today. Nobody showed up. Or maybe, you know, I followed so-and-so for five miles, got some good footage. Uh, here, here it is. And I think that's really helpful um, from my position as supervising. But it's also just great business development and, and business practice because, you know, as the investigator, um, if you are proactive about sending me updates and you are proactive about sending me video and I don't have to ask you for it, and think about it and make, take time out of my day to think, gee, what did, what did an investigator do today? It's just mm-hmm. there for me. I'm more likely to go back to that investigator because I know they're working and they're going to do a good job for me and they're going to make my life easier. So, so, so there's that. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe sort of the final uh, thing to think about is in the event that you do run into the investigator who goes out and does a bunch of things that he or she shouldn't do, mm-hmm. um, that's the last time you use them. Right. And, you know, that, that sounds a little harsh, but at the end of the day, I, I, I like my law license and I'd like to keep it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to have discipline on my file because of something somebody else did. And quite frankly, if somebody's going to, you know, sort of defy those rules of engagement and go off and do what they want, well, that's not the type of person that I want to work with. And, you know, you, if, and so my, my sort of policy is, look, if that happens, I can't work with you anymore. Um, fortunately, I've never had that happen. I've never had an investigator go off and, and, and do something bizarre where I've had to, uh, you know, fire somebody. Um, everybody oh, I've worked great. with has always been very professional and very good. Um, but I think that, you know, just, just, just sort of planning for the worst and hoping for the best, that would be the, uh, sort of the, the last tip. 
Well, you know, the thing, um, the, one of the interesting things that, that I think is that um, attorneys have to have, what, so many hours of ethics um, education, what, every couple, three years or something? Yeah, every, every three years, right. Every three years. And you have, what, do you remember what the uh, number of hours is? You know, I, I want to say it's about six hours in three years. Yeah, that sounds like a, frankly, a pretty boring class. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 not all very dynamic. Let me put it that way. Yeah, but um, but investigators aren't required to do that. Uh, I mean, it's certainly something that would be valuable for attorneys for investigators, um, but they're not required. And many and many states don't even have a continuing education component as part of their law. So. Um, for instance, California doesn't. Um, I don't know about I don't know about Colorado. Do you? Well, I don't know for investigators. I know recently in Colorado, uh, our legislature uh, just put into place an an act for licensing of private investigators. So that's new within yes. the last couple of years. Yes, and we're all um, very happy about that as well. Yeah, and I, I but I'm just I'm not familiar enough with with the ins and outs to say one way or another what the requirements are. Yeah, it seems, you know, um, we, all, we talk about ethics a lot, and sometimes ethics are simply following the rules, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, some of it is just, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, some of it is, you know, gee, does this seem like a bad idea? And, you know, if it does, then likely somebody's going to be able to find an ethical rule uh, that, that's been violated. You know, the other thing I would point out is if investigators are, are curious about what the attorney rules are, is every bar association around the country that I'm aware of puts their ethical rules online for free. So in Colorado, for example, you can go to the Colorado Bar Association and you can download all of the Colorado rules. Or, mm-hmm. for example, if you just want the ABA rules, you can go to uh, the American Bar Association's website and those rules are, are available. They're really easy to print and they're all very short. That's the other nice thing about them. There's, there's a lot of them, but they're, they're an easy read. And, you know, an investigator could easily just take a look at the rules, breeze through the ones that, they're, that are most, most relevant uh, to the work they're doing for attorneys and get a pretty good sense of what's required uh, and just kind of keep that in the back of their minds. You know, they don't need to be experts on what the attorney rules are, but mm-hmm. just, you know, know enough about them, know the basics to, to where, again, you've had that conversation with the attorney who says, hey, I want you to go out and, you know, pretext this representative plaintiff. You say, well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think there's a rule against that that you should look into. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and, it, you know, if you can't um, go to court and testify on your actions, without uh, crossing any lines or embarrassing yourself and others, then, you know, that's, that's a good gut check right there. Yeah, that's right. Just, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a, just a matter of, of, of common sense. Yeah. Which, you know, it doesn't come with a job. Common sense just doesn't come with a job. So. <laughs> well, and let me tell you, it, it doesn't come with a law degree either. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, you know, as, as, like the lady I mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes it's going to be the investigator's role to inform the attorney that, no, that's not an appropriate thing for, for us to do in this case. Forrest, have you ever had to represent a private investigator? 
I have not. I've, I've, I've never um, been involved in, in any kind of litigation involving a PI. Okay. Well, that's good news, too. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so yeah. If, yeah. Do you mind if people have questions about these ethical issues, if, if people would contact you? Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's only a limited amount of information that I can give because some of, you know, I, I mentioned there's a lot of ethical rules and, uh, you know, some of them are, are, I can't give legal advice, for example, outside of the jurisdiction that I'm licensed in. So if somebody mm-hmm. say from right. California said, hey, I've got a question about the rule, I'm, I'm ethically prohibited from applying law to facts in another jurisdiction. But what I would say is I think it would certainly be fine to contact me and I can steer you in the right direction. You know, maybe point you to some resources that you could uh, that you could look at within your own state, or even a, a referral to another lawyer within your own state who might be able to help. Okay. And so, how would they go about doing that? What how would, what is the best way? Sure. So uh, they could go to our website, which is www.childsmcune, and that's spelled C H I L D S M C. Cune.com, and uh, on that website is contact information for our firm and all of the attorneys at the firm. Oh, perfect. Okay, all right. And going back again um, to the kind of um, practice that you have developed, when mm-hmm. when you uh, I know I know what you do on the on the defense side, but when you are representing professionals, for example, what kinds of professional representation would that be like? If you say you're representing somebody on a, uh, say, a CPA, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll so uh, we'll do a variety of uh, different types of professionals. We'll, a lot of our work involves uh, alleged cases of medical malpractice. Mm-hmm. So it, it might be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, it might be a, a family doctor who, you know, allegedly missed a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It might be an attorney who allegedly missed the statute of limitations to file a case. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be a, a, a CPA who, you know, allegedly didn't understand or didn't uh, properly calendar a, a tax filing deadline. Um, it, it can be any of those things. And so mm-hmm. we'll represent that person uh, both in civil court in a lawsuit but then in the event that there's, a, uh, for example, a professional organization like the Baja, the, the Office of Attorney Regulation, or the Medical Board, for instance, and there's a complaint against that person, then we would represent them in that board case also. In an administrative kind of a hearing. Right, precisely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's fascinating for us. You, uh, thank you so much. We're at the end of our hour, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your expertise. It's been uh, really fascinating. I hope... Uh, those that are those of you that are listening have enjoyed it, um, and um, again, thank you very much. Uh, you've taken a piece out of your day, and we appreciate it. Well, thank you, Francie, for inviting me. It's been fun. It, it has been fun. So, uh, folks, for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and real attorneys like Forrest Lesko. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.